Hello, and welcome to 13. Today, we have a special episode where we're going to hear from a number of students in an art and art history class. And I am joined by their professor, Associate Professor of Art and Art History, advisor for the Architecture Minor, director of the Medieval and Renaissance Studies Program, and co-director for the Center of Freedom and Western Civilization, Carolyn Guile. Welcome back to the program. Thank you very much, Dan, for having me. So tell us a little bit about this class uh, and what your students uh, put together. Absolutely. So this is a very special class. It runs every fall. It's technically called Arts 475 Senior Projects, and it's the compulsory capstone project that all art history concentrators undertake. There's a parallel class on the studio side for their senior projects as well. So the whole group of concentrators across both studio art and art history do their senior project in the fall semester. So what it basically represents is a research project that they have developed from exposure to a subject or a topic or even a paper they worked on in a prior semester. They're taking it further, much deeper, much more intensive research process focused across the entire semester in a series of staged steps. So the class is basically the culmination of their work here at Colgate as an art history major, in a sense. And it's also the work that they do is represented in a senior show. And I'm sure we'll get to talk about that, too. So that's in a nutshell what the class is. Okay. And they spent all semester working on these projects? They do. They select a general subject area in the late summer. They usually get thinking about it during the summer. And then I kind of pin them down on a general topic by the the start of the semester. And then over the first few weeks, they start to whittle that down into a, a much more specific topic through a series of exercises that we do. So once they settle on that and commit to it, then the rest of their semester is spent researching the topic, writing a series of exercises such as a pre-focus essay, thesis statement exercises, group discussions within the classroom, independent work on their own where they're really needing to bury themselves in their materials and in their care. <laughs> they spend a lot of time in the library and their carols. Um, and then they emerge as if from a chrysalis uh, with this 25-page project with complete illustrations, citations, bibliography, and so on. Nice. All right. Well, I think we'll get started with our first student. Sounds good to me. Thank you so much for this opportunity. All right. So tell me your name, where you're from, and uh, I presume you're art history major? Yes, I okay. am. All right. So start, start from there. Sure. Uh, my name is Audrey Hong. Uh, I'm from Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, did you want me to tell you the title of my yes, project? Please, okay, yes, please. Okay, so the title of my project was, uh, or is, Decolonizing Museums with Aura and Authenticity, From the Universal Museum's Greatest Defense to Its Worst Enemy. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. Um, can you start by telling us how you landed on this topic? What interested you about it? Sure. So um, one of the most recent arguments for uh, giving back or repatriating contested objects from big museums like universal museums like the British Museum or the Metropolitan. Um, the, they claim that they're attempting to display humanity's, you know, quote unquote, global heritage. And um, so one of the most recent arguments for repatriation is that 
these museums could actually replace the uh, these objects with exact facsimiles created through digital scans and 3D printing. So basically, you know, recreating um, objects in reconstructions. So scholars and lay people alike have responded to this uh, with the rebuttal that a replica uh, of an object wouldn't create the same feeling or the aura as looking at the original. So if you were looking at a brand new copy of the Rosetta Stone, it would be inauthentic in comparison to the actual one that was carved 2,000 years ago. So that's how I got interested in it. I read a lot about that. And since I'm really in favor of repatriating cultural heritage um, from these large museums, I, I wanted to investigate if a 3D reconstruction of an object in a museum actually could create the same aura, feeling, and authenticity as the original. Uh, so what are the conditions for doing that? So how did you go about doing that research? Um, well, first I looked into the origins of the term aura and art. And that's from Walter Benjamin, uh, the German philosopher, in the 1900s. And then also how authenticity was defined as a quality that would create aura or this feeling of reverence when you're looking at a piece of art. Uh, so I considered those two concepts in terms of fakes and forgeries and talked about the art market a little bit. Um, and then I also looked at a brand new study that just came out about museums using digital 3D models for people to interact with online during COVID. And that study actually argued that, you know, this was a great way for people to interact with museums who were far away or couldn't get there, especially during COVID lockdowns. And then they argued that these online 3D models could also have a sense of aura and authenticity as well. Oh, that's really neat. Yeah. Uh, were there any surprises along the way when you were doing your research? Um, gosh, that is such a good question. You know, there were some surprises in considering... Uh, fakes and forgeries. Uh, there were some really interesting cases that I read about. I read about one that was called, um, it's called the Nodler Scandal. So it's the Nodler Gallery in New York City. And it talked about an $8.3 million Rothko uh, painting by Mark Rothko that turned out to be fake. So that was a huge surprise. Oh. And that was really cool to read about. Um, but yeah, that I mean, mostly there were surprises in sort of the content. Nothing really too crazy and surprises about my the theory that I was applying. All right. So what did you find at the end? Uh, like, what was the culmination of that work? Uh, so the culmination of that work was taking that sort of, you know, idea that a digital model online through a screen could have some aura and authenticity. And the conditions of that were that it had a lot of textual uh, context to go along with it, so that there was a lot of, you know, um, text written by museum staff that could describe uh, the origins of the work, the history of the work, and that in terms, and, and that would give a 3D model that sense of aura and authenticity. So I argued that if a 3D reconstruction, uh, the actual physical reconstruction, would be put in a museum, all it would have to have is some text about why that object had to be returned and some context, and then it could have the same feeling in a museum as the original would for visitors. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, so that was kind of the culmination of my work, and I applied that to um, a case study on the Parthenon marbles in the British Museum, which are some very contested pieces from the Parthenon in Athens that were taken and now are you know, kind of the crowning jewel of the British Museum in London. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so they are, um, that's a really interesting case. It's very recent. Greece, uh, the Greek government is asking for those uh, objects back. They have been for years, but it's getting a lot more attention these days. And actually Colgate's own Professor Marlowe, Elizabeth Marlowe, is um, a really big name in that sort of discussion. And I totally agree with her analysis of that they should go back. Um, but in terms of 
you know, repatriating, be repatriating cultural heritage. They were uh, relatively sort of, I would say, on the spectrum of colonial violence. They were sort of bloodless acquisition. There wasn't a lot of, you know, um, in terms of like in comparison to the rest of the British Museum. I don't know if people know about the Magdala collection from Ethiopia. That was a very violent acquisition um, that happened during the colonial era. So I applied this, I applied kind of, you know, the theory that I was thinking of to the Parthenon marbles to talk about how they could be replaced with these 3D printed reconstructions that people are actually creating right now. So it's an a Oxford-based research consortium called the, the Institute for Digital Archaeology, and they are um, doing making recreations. And one of them is actually in a museum. It's in the Freud Museum. If you look it up, you look up the Celine Horse at the Freud Museum, and it's a recreation of one of the marbles. Oh, very neat. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for telling us about your uh, work. Of course. Thank you for having me. All right. My name is Hannah Ditto. I'm um, an art history major. I'm from all over. This is a hard question for me. I've, I've lived in California, Minnesota, Connecticut, New York, Wisconsin. So um, I've got a big range. Um, the title of my thesis is Eclecticism and Refinement of the Psyche, a look at two of Charles Moore's houses for the architect. All right. And how did you decide to uh, focus on this for your thesis? So I've always um, had a stint in architecture. I've always had a focus in architecture in my studies. I think I've actually only taken one like pure art class while I've been at college, and that was abroad. Um, so it's, it was always very easy for me to pick an architecture-based topic. And Charles Moore, he's a very, very interesting figure. He's um, a postmodern architect. And when you look at 20th century architects, a lot of, there's a lot of ego, um, really kind of difficult personalities for a lot of like the big names. And Charles Moore just really stands out at that. He was like a very eclectic figure. He was a funny guy, life of the party. Um, and he just like really emphasized teaching and learning and, and the human element and wanted his clients to feel at home in their houses and wanted people, to, like it wasn't about him, it was about everybody else, which is so great. So I chose him sort of because he really spoke to me as a person and, and he, you know, it wasn't difficult. Okay. How did you pursue this research? So um, it, I was doing a lot of uh, primary research, doing, looking at old journals and magazine articles and stuff. So basically the, the topic of the thesis is I'm comparing two of Charles Moore's houses that he built for himself, which is a very interesting topic because it, it you know his architecture was so focused on the client and the individual and making things right for them that when you look at the houses he built for himself, it's um, a manifestation of his personality mm. and the things that he wanted and more of his style and you don't get like that other influence in it. So these two houses that I chose, the first was built in Aranda, California in 1962. Um, and the second was built a few years later. He moved to New Haven and he did a renovation of an old house. So the renovation, it was sort of an ongoing process, but it began in 1965. So they're very close um, in terms of the time scale. Um, and they are completely different. Like you could not pick two more completely different houses. Can you paint a picture of uh, the architectural style that he's known for? And I guess the um, the two different homes. Yeah. So Charles Moore is known for having a sense of humor in his work. Um, he always played off irony and he, he liked to do juxtapositions of sort of high class and lower class things and used kitsch a lot in his work, the idea of like pop art. Um, so he was, he did like have a sense of sophistication, but a lot of his work was just kind of humorous, used irony, um, sort of materials that would be associated with lower class things, using them in a high class environment. Hmm. Uh, his 
Arinda House, the first one, um, is kind of indicative of his more sophisticated styles. So his humor, which did come into the house, was very low-key, very subtle. And it's just, it's a really classy home. You know, you see a photo of it and you're like, wow, yeah, that, an architect did that. And then you kind of have to look further into the details to see his personality come out. So it's basically, it's a very simple square. Um, and he used an aedicule, which is a, it's a classical form, um, which is basically, it's, it's a space that is defined on four corners by posts, by columns, and then it's topped by a canopy. Hmm. So he has the space, which is just a big square. And then there's no interior walls except for like a little bathroom on the side. Um, and then there's a living room, which is delineated by a big aedicule. And then there's a smaller aedicule, which has a bathtub inside. No walls, just exposed to the rest of the All house. Right. <laughs> so it's this very like conceptual, theoretical, classy sort of home. And then his New Haven house, it was a renovation, but the way that he inserted his personality was these three plywood tubes. So he would basically, he would cut out the floor, uh, like a square of the floor, and then stick just a tower through it that went through the floors. And the tower is really interesting because they would have, they were double layered and would have these cutouts in them. So a lot of bright colors, a lot of shapes, and just like weird things like you wouldn't really expect hmm. to see in a home. So very different in terms of, you know, the spaces. Um, Arinda Classy used, there was actually, uh, there was some color, like bright colors in the house, but they were very toned down. I guess not bright, but like a mauve, terracotta color, and then there was a, a soft blue. And then they were into houses like bright orange, bright green, <laughs> bright pink, all these all these things. Or sorry, the New Haven house was bright orange, um, bright pink, those sorts of colors. So looking at them side by side, very, very different. Oh, it's interesting. And what was your final conclusion? My final conclusion was um, basically that the psyche was more refined in the Rinda house. So mm. the psyche, um, Moore's personality, Moore's innermost personality and desires and um, subconscious manifestations of his like stylistic impulses and the way that he would live. They were present in the Rinda house, but it was very subtle, refined, and something that was, um, it was sophisticated enough to be uh, accepted by the architectural community at large. Whereas the New Haven house, he didn't hold back. He just displayed himself and his personality um, without trying to package it, without trying to make it classy, without trying to make it something that could be perceived by others. Like, he just wanted to do it because it was fun, right? So at the end of the day, like, it wasn't really accepted by the architectural community. Um, it was seen as an expression of pop, as an expression of like this pop style and more eclecticism, but actually the only publication that really took it seriously and what was the most um, essential reference for me was an article in Playboy magazine, which is completely unexpected, but it, it shows how differently these houses were perceived and were taken at the time. That is very fascinating. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. All right. So hi, my name is Lucia Villano Alonso. I'm from Madrid, Spain, and the title of my paper is Reframing Wooden Frames, the Double Transculturation of Mudejar Strapork Wooden Ceilings. Okay, I won't try to pronounce that. Lucia, I go. No, no, not, not the okay. name. <laughs> <laughs> um, the thesis title. Um, so tell me, how did you land on that as uh, the, the, the topic of your project? 
So I'm from Madrid, but my dad's from Granada, and I go back there every year, and it's a town that is very transcultural, so there's a mix of cultures. You can see a lot of Arabic architecture, Jewish architecture, Christian architecture, and I was very interested because in a lot of the homes, there's these wooden ceilings that look very Arabic. It's like these, they kind of look like lace work mm. um, with gold, wood, it's beautiful. And yeah, I wanted to explore these ceilings and I thought that this was a good opportunity to look a little bit more into my culture. Okay. So tell me about a little bit about what you found. Um, so the project actually was quite a journey in itself. Um, Mudejar is a word that means permitted to remain and it referred to the Arabic population that was allowed to stay after the Spanish reconquest in 1492. And then I figured out that it was like a whole jumble like of history. There's a lot of confusion if these ceilings were actually Arabic, were they made by Christians, by Jewish uh, carpenters. And then eventually what I found out is that these, it was like a mix of all, like there were all these cultures that remained and it was primarily Christian uh, patrons that commissioned carpenters to do the work. And of course, since there were all these cultures, it was a mix of all three. And then you can see these different elements being tied into these strap work wooden ceilings. And then my project as well, I not only focus on the transculturation in the Iberian Peninsula, I look at how these ceilings were also transferred to the to Latin America. So by the conquistadores and how even indigenous people and communities there adopted this type of mudejar art. Well, they were forced to in the beginning, but then they incorporated into their own Latin American works. And yeah. Where did you find this information? I mean, how old is some of the source material you were looking at? So yeah, this that's a key question. Actually, I was looking at two manuscripts. One of the main ones is from the 1450s century ones. There's this one called, uh, it's by Diego López de Arena, which is called Carpinteria de lo Blanco, which is what was referred to these type of lace works. And that one was like a Spanish document and it was made in Spain. Uh, but then there's also this other one that I found um, that is that, that was very important. And it was by this Fray San Luis. And that was in Mexico. And so I didn't find these manuscripts myself. <laughs> Obviously, it was like very hard. I, I found copies of them, but it was very hard for me to read them. So there's this one main academic in the field for Carpinteria de lo Blanco and these types of ceilings called Enrique Nuero Matauco. And he's key. And his works are really like encrypting and like decodifying all of the different elements, um, which is very cool. Hmm. Are there any examples of these ceilings in the U.S.? Yes. And so this is actually a different point um, for my whole thesis. I wanted to kind of explore every aspect of Mudejar. I wanted to look into how they originated in Spain, how they've like developed in Latin America, and then also examples of these ceilings in the U.S. And what's interesting is that, um, do you know Win William Randolph Hearst? Of course. Yes. So in the Hearst Castle, he has a lot of these ceilings. And there's a lot of controversy of how they got there, if they were stolen, looted when Spain was in crisis in the 19th century and when it was very impoverished, some of the ceilings were taken down. And that's a whole aspect that I wanted to explore, but was a little bit too complex and too long to incorporate into this one. So that's hopefully something that if I go for honors, I can explore in my next paper. Oh, very neat. Doesn't show up in Citizen Kane, does it? Actually, I think it might. Ooh. I haven't watched that movie in a while, but I have to rewatch it. <laughs> <laughs> Very 
Very good. Um, any su- other surprises along the way when you were doing your research? Yeah, so many, actually. Uh, the main thing was trying to figure out just what what are these ceilings. I thought that they were quite – you look at them, they're super complex, and they seem like these in, these works that are that take so long to be made. But then you actually realize that – it's actually way simpler, and that's why they're able to be recreated all over Spain and also in Latin America. And they follow these structures called cartabones, which they're used like these tri- three types of right triangles to make these wheels. And so even though they seem super complex, you watch YouTube videos. I mean, I'm not a carpenter, and I'm sure I, I would do a poor job, <laughs> but it's way more simple than it seems. And so I think that was the biggest surprise. I thought it was going to be a very difficult process, and it's... Yeah, not not so hard. I mean, yeah. All right. And did you have an ultimate conclusion? Yes, kind of. Yes. Um, my conclusion was that I kind of assert that these that Mudejar isn't just one type of culture. I think that there's a lot of literature that says it is Arabic or it is Christian. And I decide that it is a mix of all three. Also because of like the community at that time, some people were forced to change religions and all of that. So it doesn't really matter like who built it, but I, I agree that it is a mix of all cultures. Um, and I think it's very beautiful as well that indigenous carpenters, um, even through like this colonization and the strife that they experienced, they were able to adopt and incorporate it and embrace Mudejar art themselves as well. That's great. Thank you. My name is Chase Cleary. Um, I'm from Darien, Connecticut, and the title of my thesis is Dissection and Decolonization, Analyzing Hannah Hawk and Greta Stern's Disruption of the Male Gaze. All right. Tell me how you decided on that topic. Yes. Yeah, so last year, I took a course called Latin American Modernism, and I learned for the first time about the work of Greta Stern and her work in Argentina in like the 1950s, and what I was reading about her then I did a paper on her, focused my research for that semester on her appropriation of photo montage to sort of reflect upon the conditions of um, motherhood and domesticity in Argentina and in the time of the new woman. And then this year, I sort of wanted to go back to my first thoughts when I was beginning the research last year and combine her work with Hannah Hawks, who sort of is 10 years her senior and began appropriating photo montage to sort of engage that female perspective before Greta Stern. And I just wanted to look at how they both did it. Now tell me about the photo montage. Is this uh, just a piece of art or is this um, part of architecture or what, what exactly is this? Or what, what does it look like? Yes. Yeah, so photo montage was a medium that sort of um, came along with the advent of photography and it was, it's associated with Dadaism and surrealism where it sort of takes uh, various images and it reframes them and repositions them using different proportions. And it sort of creates a singular narrative within a frame, but with various different realities being depicted. Like it's using real images, but to convey something that's not feasibly possible. But by showing real images, you sort of have to reflect upon why those were put together and sort of what the implications of this scene in front of you means. Okay. And how did you go about conducting this research? Um, yeah, so I started with looking at a lot of 
uh, museum exhibitions and like their catalogs that went along with it and sort of just understood how these two artists have been um, like studied in art scholarship. And I was really surprised when I first began this because there's been no comparison of Hannah Hawk and Greta Stern, which it seems so obvious to me that they were doing very similar things and doing photo montage and sort of dissecting this idea of the new woman, but they had not been sort of analyzed together in scholarship. So it was hard in the beginning because I thought I was going to have a lot of sources that would sort of help guide my um, comparison of these two artists, but I had to really get involved in two different areas of scholarship and then see how I wanted to pair them together. Okay, interesting. And what did you find along the way as you looked at them and you were doing this comparison? Yeah, so I found that they, while they were in um, the Weimar Republic in Germany from 1918 to 1933, they were doing very much the same thing by taking um, like these male curated representations of what like a woman should look like in media. And they were both sort of mocking that and um, using photo montage to saturize those images. But because they have different identities, Stern was Jewish and she had to go to Argentina when Hitler came to power and Hannah Hawk stayed in Berlin. And I found that that was a big sort of disjuncture in how they were engaging with the feminist perspective and like the condition of womanhood um, in the 1920s to 1950s. And Hannah Hawk, I saw sort of more focused on androgyny and confusion of gender to deconstruct the hierarchy that was in place in um, Germany at the time. And Greta Stern was herself a mother and a wife, and she used these roles to really um, target like the everyday conditions of a woman in Argentina and was sort of more relatable to like a middle-class female audience while Hannah Hawk was more targeting her work to the like, men in power who were sort of imposing these um, hierarchies onto women. Interesting. And is there... Um, did their work influence any modern art that we see today or anything like uh, in the cultural landscape today has that been influenced by their work? Greta Stern, I would say not as much because I think she's really overlooked. Mm -hmm. I think because she went to Argentina and didn't keep any really association with Hannah Hawk and surrealism in Germany that she is definitely very underanalyzed. So I don't see... There's very little scholarship on her, but Hannah Hawk has always just been associated as like the one female artist in the surrealist movement. But I think that I say in my paper that that's an underestimation of her work and that that was just one part of her like artistic progression and that she broke away from surrealism to sort of attack these gender hierarchies. Because even within surrealism, she was marginalized and discriminated against because of her work with the female perspective. Mm. So I guess I say, like, in my, I conclude that the like, historiography around these two artists need to be reanalyzed to understand the greater implications of their work and to sort of put them in a new light, like disassociated from 
surrealism and dissociated from being just a Latin American artist to sort of probe the complexities of their work. All right. And are any of these works on display now? Like, can people go see them? Yes. Um, I saw, I personally saw some of Greta Stern's photo montages at MoMA and Hannah Hawk has a lot of work, I think, across the world. And she's just always put in a few of her pieces with, if there's a surrealist ex- exposition um, or exhibit, they just put her work alongside um, like Raoul Hausman and um, Walter Peter Hans. And they just sort of lump her in with this broader umbrella of surrealism, but not so much in like a feminist way. They just sort of see her as the female surrealist. Hmm. Interesting. Hi, my name is Madison Matroni. I'm from New Jersey, and the title of my thesis is An Exploration of Modern Connoisseurship Through the Lens of the Rembrandt Research Project. Oh, interesting. Now, what is modern connoisseurship through the Rembrandt Research Project? Yes. So um, connoisseurship, just as a concept, most simply is the ability based on experience to recognize the hand of an artist. So that means being able to authenticate a piece as by a specific artist. Um, they find a piece of art and they don't know who it's by, and an expert would come in and say, that's by Picasso, or oh. that's by not Picasso. So what I wanted to do with this project is look into this authentication process or authentication project that was the Rembrandt Research Project. So essentially what this was is um, an initiative by the Dutch Research Council to look at the catalog we had of Rembrandt panties of Rembrandt paintings and see which ones these experts thought were still authentic Rembrandt pieces of art and which ones they thought were not Rembrandt pieces of art. Oh, wow. Now, how did you get interested in this? So I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to study in Florence last semester. And while I was there, I wrote a paper about um, the Salvador Mundi by Leonardo da Vinci, which was the most expensive piece of art ever sold. And what I specifically looked into was, again, this process of authenticating the piece and the various different techniques that experts use in order to say, we think that this is by Leonardo da Vinci or we think that it is not. So when I got back to campus in the fall, I was talking about this interest I had with both Professor Guile and Professor Marlowe, and I thought that the work there for me had kind of been done, so I didn't want to extend the work on the Salvador Mundi, so they suggested that a similar project um, was the Rembrandt Research Project. So my work really began there, and I did a lot of extensive reading into that project, but I felt that there wasn't really much of a question if I was just researching that project and then presenting that research. There was no real argument. So I decided to expand the project out. And the first thing I did was look into, again, this history of connoisseurship. So I say modern connoisseurship because I begin with theories starting in the 1800s. And in my paper, I looked at three main scholars that really contributed largely to the ideas we have today about what methods should be used for connoisseurship and then how those ideas influence the methods they used in the Rembrandt Research Project. And then a final component that I have in my paper is relating it to and putting it in the context of the art market and understanding how the project is compatible or incompatible with the wants and needs of the art market and the pressures that the art market puts on scholars and the way that they perform different types of connoisseurship. Oh, that's fascinating. Now, how did they go about verifying that these are real? Yeah, so I think the big debate 
that I found in the field of connoisseurship is should we be using more subjective methods or more objective methods? So the trend that I found was that a lot of times they really want to make it a more um, objective field and want to make it an almost scientific process, step-by-step process of how you authenticate a piece. Another layer of that is they actually used scientific techniques. So they use these scientific techniques to try to look into um, the dating of the panels or the dating of the paint in order to see if it's from the correct time period. And I think they were very hopeful that these scientific techniques would yield very definitive answers about whether or not this was by Rembrandt. But in the end, what they found and what I found from my research was that these scientific techniques or these scientific methods of inquiry don't really get the full picture because art is really this subjective field and being able to get the full sense of a piece of art or just understanding the aura or getting this intuition that it is by an artist, as much as we want to make it more of a subjective process, there, sorry, an objective process, there's always going to be this subjectivity and there's still value in that subjectivity. Hmm. So is it possible that... Uh using the scientific method to identify you could you could miss something that that would fall outside of that scale is that the idea yeah i think so i think number one it just doesn't encapsulate the full picture i think number one it's not advanced enough there's not enough techniques to really show everything but also like you were saying just understanding it more as a whole and less as these little scientific pieces of evidence um, is sort of the best way to do things. And often combining this scientific evidence with other modes of inquiry is the best way to authenticate these pieces. Oh, interesting. And um, I guess, spoiler for the end of the Rembrandt project, how many were real? How many were fake? Did they discover any fakes? So interestingly, there this project um, went on from 1968 to 2004. And it had a variety of different directors and a variety of different team members. Um, And actually, at each stage of the project, they took out pieces and then put pieces back in. So each catalog, um, there's around six of them, has some pieces taken out and some pieces put back in. So I think it just shows that this really is an objective process. And you really just need to take authentication processes as objective and as someone's opinion, you're never really going to have the absolute answer. And I think that's something I've also learned from this project is that we just need to accept that at the end of the day, these are people's opinions. That's great. Hi, I'm Audrey Chan. I'm from Grand Forks, North Dakota. And the title of my thesis is Recognition and Reconciliation, Developing Indigenous Sovereignty in Contemporary American Art Museums. All right, and how did you decide on that topic for your thesis? So it's kind of interesting. I developed this passion for contemporary indigenous arts through a series of different exhibitions that I was lucky lucky enough to work on, um, both at Colgate and just in the museum world in general. Um, So the summer after my freshman year at Colgate, I actually worked at the Longyear Museum of Anthropology on an exhibition titled Makers and Materials of the Americas. And in um, that exhibition, I was able to work with several pieces of contemporary indigenous art, um, kind of surrounding the question of why was that art in the Anthropology Museum and not at the Picker Art Gallery? Um, So that kind of sparked my interest and led to um, the development of an exhibition at the Picker Art Gallery of um, that very collection. Um, And so I was able to lead um, an exhibition um, titled Living Legends, um, 
that featured uh, those um, pieces for the first time at um, the art museum, which was a really monumental moment because it was this kind of transference um, of the understanding that contemporary indigenous art um, should be recognized as art rather than solely anthropology. Um, and from that, um, I was very lucky to have an experience working at the Whitney Museum of American Art on um, a retrospective of the artist John Quick to see Smith. Um, and that was a really informative experience for me. And I was um, very excited to be working on the project because it was the first major uh, retrospective of an indigenous artist featured at the Whitney. And that's where I really um, became interested with this question of why is contemporary indigenous art not considered a part of contemporary American art? Hmm. So what did you find? Um, well, I found that um, in terms of how um, we see contemporary American art, there's this gap currently um, where indigenous arts are kind of left out. And with the development of uh, critical museum theory and initiatives towards diversity, equity, accessibility, and inclusion, um, we're starting to see that um, this is a major area that needs to be worked on and contemporary American art museums are really trying to fill that now. Despite being indigenous to the land, um, native perspectives are often um, excluded from narratives of history produced by museums. So uh, museums and contemporary indigenous artists have really had a tenuous relationship that needs to be tended to in order for contemporary Native American art to enter the schema of American art. So my paper basically highlights some different considerations that I think that contemporary American art museums um, should take in order to kind of reconcile this relationship. Um, one of which is expanding our ways of knowing. Um, there are a lot of problematic stereotypes uh, that skew the way that we perceive Native art, um, including this kind of idea that Native American people are of the past or that their arts are overly traditional. So I basically challenge museums to expand their existing understandings of categories like Native art to be seen as intersecting with American art and contemporary art. So Native artists don't live in this sort of bubble that is exclusive to Indigenous art, but instead they're very much present in the dialogue um, with contemporary art around the world and should be given the opportunity to engage um, in such visual conversations. Um, and with that, I also feel that there's um, a very important point to be said about relinquishing authority within the museum. Museums are often thought of as this sort of absolute voice, um, but indigenous peoples have not historically uh, been given the right to tell their own stories, and that's where I feel that this idea of sovereignty really comes in. Um, the right to self-representation is indigenous sovereignty, whether it's aesthetic freedom, interpretive freedom, cultural freedom. They're all areas that have been denied to Native people in the past, and this is um, a way that we can decolonize museums is allowing them the right to tell their own stories. Hmm. Lastly, I would say that... Um, in terms of decolonization, I believe that it needs to happen at a very broad scale in order for museums to create spaces in which Native artists are empowered. Um, it's really demeaning when a museum dedicates a lot of time and effort to a singular space that's displaying a contemporary Native artist, but then maybe across the hall they're celebrating colonial landscape painting. Um, and it's about really creating through lines throughout the museum that show that they're um, making a stance in terms of where they stand and how they support Indigenous artists and carrying that throughout their entire message. How did you conduct this research? Like, what did you do for it? 
So um, I actually found that it was difficult to conduct this research because it's such a new area. Mm. Um, there's kind of a lack of scholarship, but there still is a developing area. And I found that I had to sort of look beyond um, the art historical material into Indigenous studies and into exhibition reviews um, because it's very much um, an interdisciplinary field right now and growing very much out of Indigenous scholars. That's very fascinating. Thank you very much. Is there anything you'd like to add? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that after writing my paper, I kind of took a minute to re reflect on it. And I found that one of the main themes that I want to highlight is the idea of humility um, and that museums need to have the ability to acknowledge that your way of understanding the world isn't the only one, nor is it inherently correct. Um humility means to step down and allow those who have been oppressed to tell their stories on their own terms. And um, understanding decolonization is, is a long process. And it um, to do right by it, it has to be holistic. And that's how I see um, Native American artists and museums being able to establish a relationship of mutual respect and reconciliation. You know, in your work looking into this, I'm curious if there were any museums that you feel like are doing it right. Yeah, I mean, all museums have had kind of this um, difficult relationship at first, but I did a lot of research on um, Canadian art museums um, just because they've been really focused on um, truth and reconciliation within Canada. So um, the National Gallery of Canada kind of started from a place where their first acquisition of a Native American art piece was seen as kind of performative in a way. And there was a lot of backlash saying that, oh, they were only collecting for the sake of saying that they had Indigenous artwork. Um, but several decades have passed since then, and now they're actually um, developing a department that's dedicated to um, Indigenous research, Indigenous knowledge, and um, decolonization within their museum that's led by two scholars that are completely dedicated to the idea of representing um, Indigenous communities on their own terms. Mm. And that's very monumental within the field. Is that a model you think other museums may take up? I hope so. I mean, I think it'll take a long time and it's certainly a ways to go, but I can see those um, fields starting to develop at the moment and we'll get there. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. So my name is Sophie Mack and I'm from San Francisco, California. And the title of my thesis is The Endurance of Michael Fried's Art and Objecthood. So tell me how you decided upon this for your thesis paper. So I read this piece, this essay, by this art critic, Michael Fried, sophomore year, when I was in this class, Art in Theory, 1960 to 1980. And it's basically a critique of minimalism, which is this movement that kind of emphasizes, like, geometric shapes and simplicity. And he's basically calling it, Michael Fried is calling it a form of non-art. And he, in this way, he's also coining this term objecthood. And so... When I initially read it, I really didn't understand it. And so I wanted to kind of dive into his work and what he meant by objecthood and then apply it to other examples that weren't just minimalism. So the first task was kind of figuring out what his whole essay was about. And it was definitely it was definitely a little difficult, but I I kind of wanted to just figure it out because when I initially read it, I just felt like 
it was really important and I could sense that it had larger implications than just minimalism. And it's kind of a combination of like art philosophy, art history, and art critique all in one. And I thought that was really interesting. So I wanted to explore that a little further. All right. So tell me about how you went about that process. Sure. So I wanted to, he essentially calls minimalism a form of non-art because it's embracing objecthood. And so I wanted to find examples that sort of were similar to that in a way and kind of challenged people's ideas and conceptions of what art is. So I went with three examples and they span very broadly. So I first decided to look into NFTs, which I had done a research paper on in the past and also was a confusing subject. But I, so I decided to look at NFTs because they exist solely online and you're not buying anything except for a digital JPEG or a GIF. So that was one thing that kind of challenged the notion of what people think art is, what objecthood is in art. And then I also looked to forgery because that's another thing, another art form that people don't think of as art. It's, it's a fake. It's not true art. It's not authentic. And then I also looked at this instance of Banksy's art in 2018 where he shredded a piece of his art once it had already been bought. And that kind of made people think, is this even valuable anymore? Is this even art? It's been shredded. And so I looked at all of those examples because Michael Fried was kind of essentially challenging that minimalism was even an art form at all. And so I kind of wanted to look at his ideas through these three examples that I felt represented kind of a challenge against what people think art is. All right. So at the end of the day, what did you find? So I found that it was a lot more complicated than I originally thought, <laughs> which is true. And I, I think in, in Freed's analysis in Art and Objecthood, he kind of pits, he says that minimalism is just this idea of solely embracing objecthood. And then modernist painting is like suspending objecthood and suspending when you're looking at a modernist art piece, you're looking at it and you're kind of being transported away from reality, whereas minimalist art like situates you in reality. And so I looked at all these examples and they all kind of had both elements. They kind of took you away from reality, but also situated you right back in it. And so that was kind of my takeaway was that he had, his idea of objecthood was really interesting, but as movements have gotten more complex since modernism and postmodernism, it's kind of become it's kind of become a little more muddled. The idea of objecthood has become a little more muddled than I originally thought. Hmm. And how did Banksy factor into that? Like, what was what was your finding there? So, I I think the idea with Banksy was is his art even valuable or successful anymore since it's shredded? It's like he's taking a whole art piece and then shredding it in front of an audience right after it's been bought. And so, I kind of was just looking to see if he if the audience thought it was valuable anymore and it, it they did and it became actually more valuable after it had been shredded because he was kind of creating this spectacle that required an audience and that's kind of what like embracing objecthood is is as well so i think i just kind of wanted to choose examples that challenged challenged people's conceptions of what art is just based on freed's kind of problem with minimalism so yeah do you have a problem with minimalism too? <laughs> I don't, but I could see how he did. And I could see how in at the time when modernist painting was kind of pushing the boundaries, 
minimalism was this, just this complete departure from just painting on a flat canvas. And I thought that I, I think it, I think it counts as art. I think I do, but I could see, I could totally see his perspective and what he was thinking at the time. All right. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, no, that's all. All right. Thank you. Thank that's you. <laughs> so tell us your name, where you're from and what your thesis is. So my name is Eliza Gu, and my Chinese name is Eiting Gu. I'm from Nantong, China, and my thesis is about a journey of self-exploration from He Chengyao's performance art before um, beyond political subversion. Okay, so tell me what, uh, how you got interested in that topic. So I'm not interested in Chinese contemporary art, but the literature in this area mainly concentrates on male artists like Ai Weiwei and Tai Guoqiao. So I want to contribute to understanding um, female artists whose voices are kind of not prominent in this area. And I found He Chengyao, the artist I wrote about, particularly fascinating. So her art connects personal experiences to broader culture and social meanings. Um, through self-reflections, she explores how the social environment shapes her identity as a female, as a daughter, as a mother, and as a citizen. So I'm strongly connected to the way she uses her personal experience, and that's the reason I got into this topic. And what kind of art are we talking about? Is this sculpture, painting? No, it's other... a performance art. A performance art, okay. Yeah. And what kind of performance art? Can you describe it for us? Um, she uses her body as a medium to push um, her physical and mental limits in a way. In her early work, um, she used her naked body as a medium to show the childhood trauma of having a mentally ill mother during the Cultural Revolution, what her mother, her grandmother had, had, been, <clears throat> had, had been through at that time. And in her later work, um, <clears throat> she decided not to use a naked body, but to use a gender-neutral position, like shave her hair and dress in all black with no gender reference. Mm. Um, to <clears throat> investigate a variety of topics, like um, the most prominent one is um, in the, how she finds herself living in a very restrictive environment. The, the, the restrictions, I mean, is not only about the political restriction in China's environment, but also like um, very philosophical ideas about how the physical body restricts the mental body, a mental sp mental spirit, um, about how a, a patient with lung cancer, like her father, um, struggles with um, breathing. So the disease restricts the ability to breathe. So mm. yeah. And what did you find in in like looking at her work? Like I guess what stood out as in comparison to um, the the male artist, I guess, in China that you were comparing? Yeah, so um, Chinese artists are typically romanticized as sub subversive subjects struggling against an authoritative state. And those um, male artists who earn a big name in the <clears throat> in the global uh, perspective, uh, a lot of them, them, their work, uh, especially like I will always work, are challenging 
on the <clears throat> authoritative states. Um, and so I'm wondering um, how to understand Chinese performance artists. Is it is it um, single possibility um, as resistant? So my research kind of uh, provides an alternative understanding of her work beyond the political subversion. Um, I find that she is different from political activists and artists who directly confront with the government demanding political and social changes. Instead, she critically reflects on the environment she lives in from a very personal perspective while avoiding a subversive stance. And her personal accounts receive a political meaning when her work enters the public sphere. So while it is important to uh, know the political implication of her work, um, I suggest that we cannot simply label her as a subversive um, artist. So do you think that that um, the idea that her work is subversive is attached to it by other people? Like that wasn't her yeah. intention? Yeah, she, um, she said, she clearly articulated that um, um, the, the political and social interpretations of her work as an overall environment, but the, her intention is present a personal story. Yeah, and she um, deliberately avoids the political implications and uh, the uh, feminist implication by taking a lot of strategies like shaving hair and um, just being trying to be a political. Thank you so much, Professor Guile, and thank you to all of the students who shared your work with us today. It was really great to hear all of the things going on in the classroom. Uh, and I can't wait to do something like this again uh, with some other classes. Uh, we will see you next time. And until then, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications and Events. Episodes are recorded on campus in Lathrop Hall. Executive Producer, Colgate Vice President for Communications and Events, L. Hazel Jack. Producer and host, Dan DeVries. And audio production by Brian Ness. Learn about all the happenings at Colgate at colgate.edu, colgatemagazine.com, and colgateresearchmagazine.com. 